Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, good morning, church. It's Super Bowl Sunday. Don't know if anyone is aware of this. Is anyone planning on watching the game today? I have bad news. My team isn't playing, so I'm planning to go on for a long time today. I will be honest, my my team is not playing in the Super Bowl today, so I will admit to all of you that I have the unfortunate uh, attachment to a team called the Atlanta Falcons, who just so lovingly graced me a couple years ago with the largest Super Bowl collapse in history. So I'm still a little bitter, even a few years on, and so I don't know if I'm going to watch today's game. We'll see how I feel this afternoon after I get through this. But for those of you that are interested in watching today's game, as I was reflecting this week and thinking about how to follow up on Paul's sermon last week, Paul challenged us with probably one of the most difficult aspects of our shared relationship in Christ, right? He challenged us with unity, and unity is difficult. Sermons like the one Paul shared last week, those are difficult to hear, even more difficult to put into practice. And it got me thinking, how do we actually respond to such a challenge? What instructions can we find in Scripture, uh, instructions that Christ and the apostles leave for us in our search for unity? And that's why I got into the topic and thinking about the Super Bowl, because every football team, like every sports team, and I'll admit, I'm a big sports guy. I think my wife gets a little bit annoyed when she comes home and there's a different game on every single day because I pay for one of those wonderful sports streaming packages. So I have something to watch all the time. It's kind of great. But every sports team at the outset of every year has one goal, right? We can recognize that. And so, a long time ago, I had a youth mentor of mine. We were, uh, we were doing one of those wonderfully joyous youth activities. And how many of you remember wheelbar- wheelbarrow races, right? Wheelbarrow races or three-legged races, right? You remember those old church picnics where you'd get tied together through three-legged races? He taught me a very important lesson that I still remember to this day on the topic of unity. And it applies to every sports team that has ever broken my heart. And that is there is a difference between union and unity. Because every team at the outset of every season has a common goal. They have union with each other. They're playing on the same team and they're playing for the same prize. But very rarely does every team have unity amongst themselves. And I think that's a very apt acknowledgement of the church. Every church, every body of believers is in union with each other. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ, but rarely do we actually implement unity. And so as I was reflecting on this and preparing for Super Bowl Sunday, what I thought we would do today is talk about what unity looks like in practice and how we can pursue unity going forward. So today, 
what we're going to do is we're going to go and look at 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can feel free to, to pull, pull that out. If you have your Bible on your phone, you can take a look at that. But we are going to look at 1 Corinthians and go through a number of different passages. But first I want to read 1 Corinthians 11 to 13. It says this, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, what what we have here is Paul is concerned with the divisions within the church in Corinth. And so Paul applies the gospel to the church. In chapters 1 through 4 in Corinthians, he extols the power of wisdom, uh, the wisdom of God to unify both the Jews and Gentiles, the rich and poor, the educated and ignorant in the person and the work of Christ. Then in chapters 5 through 10, he addresses matters of holiness and love, but divisions in the church are not forgotten. And thus in chapter 11, Paul returns to considering gathered worship, things like today when we come together on Sunday. He again seeks to foster unity through the gospel and the gifts of the Spirit. And that brings us to chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 says this, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone is the same God at work. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13 goes on to say this, For just as the body is one, and yet has many parts, and all the parts of the body, though there are many, are one body, also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So Paul is super focused on a church that is struggling to implement unity. The church itself in Corinth understands that Christ has come and Christ has saved them, but they are bickering amongst themselves for positioning. Paul goes on to talk about this. And so after, uh, in verses 14 and following, he employs a very long metaphor that I'm sure some of us have heard over the years about the body of Christ, and he illustrates the way in which each part of the body is designed to build itself up in love. To a people who are approaching Christ and his body as members in competition with one another. He's addressing competition. And to those who are comfortable drawing a circle around themselves and relating to God on their own terms without strong ties to others, Paul has a lot to say in this, in this chapter. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 29, it says this, Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healing, helps, administration, and various kinds of tongues. 
So what we find in verses 12 through 31 are instructions about what the church is. We find instructions about who makes up the church, how each part relates to one another, and how every part needs one another. How God created the church to be a place where his spirit would empower diverse parts of the body to build one another up. And how the one body requires the many parts to work together to be what they are, the body of Christ. Within this portion of scripture, in 1 Corinthians 12, I sincerely believe that the church would be strengthened if we're able to distill and reflect on these four biblical concepts that I think are needed to build up the body of Christ. The first is unity, but unity in action. Diversity. There is diversity in the church, and we need to not only celebrate it, but recognize it and build it up. We need to celebrate the service to one another and service to Christ, because Christ is ultimately who we are serving, and we do that with each other. And finally, love. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to one of my favorite misquoted passages of Scripture that I guarantee every single one of you has heard. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you can cheat a little bit, just like one of the football teams is going to do later today, I guarantee you. And you can look ahead one chapter, and you'll see what I'm talking about. But I want to talk about the first two on that list. Unity and diversity. Because I don't think we can talk about these separately. Paul addresses them together. At the beginning and end of this section in, in Corinthians 12, Paul makes a one compounded point. The church is one unified body. And this body is made up of many parts. Just like the human body is made up of many diverse parts, so the church with its various spiritual people is one body. And this is what Paul was highlighting in, in uh, verses 12 through 14. He says, again, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized, into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. And again, in verse 27, he comes back to this and reminds the reader, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. As to the arrangement of Paul's argument, I take it as intentional that he begins and ends with this balanced presentation of unity and diversity. In between these two verses, Paul will present two conversations between differing parts of the body. And his goal is to see the church rely on one another and to love one another. In other words, the church should experience mutuality and charity. What do I mean by mutuality and charity? I mean service to one another and love. But such mutual love, it only exists if the unity in diversity is both understood and embraced. It's really hard to serve those that you're bickering with, right? It's really hard to be unified with those we don't love. 
So Paul makes two good arguments to help those in the church of Corinth see the wisdom of unity and diversity in the body of Christ. The first has to do with spiritual gifts. And that was the first part of chapter 12. Verses 1 through 11, they explained how all these gifts were given by God. Each gift had a variety of ministry and and was given for the common purpose of building up the body of Christ. Likewise, verses 27 through 31 also list a number of spiritual gifts. And while the time that we have this morning doesn't allow me a full examination of each and every gift, we can say a couple things that are true about this portion of Scripture. Verse 28 says, each gift comes from God. So each gift presented to each believer in this room has been given by God to you. Paul lists three offices or responsibilities that are evident within the church, and he lists five particular gifts. Altogether, they list the gifts that were present in the church in Corinth. They also hint at the fact that the offices of elders and deacons were yet to come. Notice how the two gifts of helping and administering have not formalized into official offices yet. There's no mention of elders or deacons in the church in Corinth, and why would there be? In its three years of existence, you've got to remember, this church is brand new, made up of Christians who are just learning what it means to follow the gospel. And so it's in its three years of existence, the church had two things, apostles and prophets. That being said, we can glimpse from Paul's words, there was a time that was coming when teachers and those with the gift of teaching would replace apostles and prophets. Following this list of offices and gifts, Paul offers a battery of questions towards the end. In verses 29 through 30, he's asking questions of the church. The point being made here is that no one person has all the gifts, If any of you know a single person that has every gift of the Spirit that you could ever think of, please let them know we have many volunteer options that they can all volunteer for at one time. We don't all have all the gifts. God has given his church a variety of gifts, which together make up the full composite of Christ's church. This is why we need one another. The variety of spiritual gifts reinforce the main point, and that is that God has given his church a diversity of gifts to unify one body. If he gave a select group all the gifts, would they need anyone else? Probably not. But God, in his infinite wisdom, chose to spread the gifts out amongst his people so they would work together for his glory and not theirs, not ours. So the gifts are the first way Paul emphasizes unity and diversity. The second refers to the baptism of the Spirit in verses 12 and 13. And when Paul speaks of the church body in 1 Corinthians 12, he says that all members possess the same Spirit because all have been baptized with or in the same Spirit. Right? He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and with all the members of the body, though many, there is one body. This outpouring of the Spirit is evidenced in, in Acts, and it goes beyond Pentecost. It actually begins in Jerusalem, but soon the living waters of the Spirit flow into the world. 
First, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit in Acts 8. Then the Gentiles at Cornelius, uh, Cornelius' house in Acts 10. Lastly, the followers of John, they receive the Spirit when Paul baptizes them in, in Jesus' name in Acts 19. And these events, they mark the different phases of Pentecost in Acts. And they form a bridge from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. These different phases of Pentecost do not provide a paradigm for how we experience spirit baptism today, but rather they demonstrate how the Spirit arrived such that today, for all of us in this room who receive Christ by faith, we immediately receive the Spirit. And if we receive the Spirit, we receive the gifts that come with it. This is what we know as spirit baptism, or what Paul describes as drinking of the Spirit. The language is metaphorical, and most likely Paul is referring back to Jesus' own words in John chapter 7, where he says this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow the rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The point Paul is making is that those who are baptized in the same Spirit, whether they are Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, they are one in Christ. They are one in Spirit. And they are one in the church. This is Paul's foundation for what the church is to be. This is the foundation upon which he wants every church that the gospel is reaching to build upon. We must understand and embrace if that we are to enjoy unity, we have to do more than just believe in it as a concept. We must swim in its living waters and verses 14 through 26 in this chapter, they show us how to do that through both mutuality and charity, service to one another and love. So let's take a look at service to one another. In verses 15 through 26, Paul gives two conversations about the body of Christ. He's having two conversations in the letter. In the first, he personifies the foot and the ear as two disgruntled members of the body. They look at the other more desirable parts of the body and they conclude that because they are not like the hand or the eye, there's no place for them. In the second conversation, he personifies the eye and the head as two proud members of the body who look down on the hands and feet and say to themselves, I have no need for them. Clearly, Paul is speaking figuratively, almost allegorically. And in the end, in verse 27, he says, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. But from verses 12 through 26, he's speaking figuratively. He uses this extended metaphor to expose the ridiculous nature of members in the Corinth church chafing against one another instead of caring for one another. Paul is attempting to tackle a problem that I think every brand new church in the known world at that time was facing. I think it's a struggle that every church that we know of is still facing. Paul is addressing members of the church who feel disgruntled or dejected. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, each one of us have probably found ourselves in that place once in our life. 
And he says to them something very interesting. Something that was probably countercultural then, and I can only assume is far more countercultural now. He tells the reader to stop making decisions based on your feelings, but walk in the truth of who we are in Christ. Paul is addressing proud Christians who feel they don't need anyone else. And he says to them, you who are more presentable, you actually need the weaker, less presentable, and less honorable parts of the body. And he goes a step further and says they are actually indispensable to you. So stop being so arrogant. You can see how this chapter is hopefully relevant to us. Because I think we struggle to walk by the truth of the gospel sometimes because we are trained to serve our feelings. Social media, our news, our culture today is all about me, about how I feel, about how that impacts me. And the moral outrage that is developed has just become the new normal and accepted. But the Bible actually gives us a very different message. Its news is that people who are miserable can actually find hope and life in Christ. And God calls sinners to find forgiveness and the homeless to have a home in the church as part of the body. Christ died on Calvary to give a place for those who do not have a place. And the church, therefore, is the family that God gives his children as we march our way on to heaven. Now, if you've never heard of that good news before you, the, the good news that you can trust in Christ, the good news that you can turn away from sin and find a place in his family, I encourage you to consider it. It's an invitation that will always be there and an invitation that I would love to talk to you more about. But sadly, there are many like those in Corinth who have found Christ, who have accepted Christ, but yet they still walk alone. And it is the lies that these spiritual individualists believe that Paul addresses in verses 15 through 26. These are two lies that I think the church struggled with then, and they're two lies we struggle with today. The first is, the church doesn't need me. The second is, I don't need the church. I don't know how you approach those two. I don't know how those resonate with you, but these are very personal for me. In my friend group, in my circle of influence, in those that I've grown up with that were raised in the church, I've seen many friends and family walk away from the church. And almost always, it's because of one of those two lies. I don't need the church anymore. I'm past that spiritual nonsense. I'll live a good moral life, but the teachings of scripture don't apply to me anymore. Or you know what? The church doesn't need me. I don't bring anything of value. I don't believe fully what they believe, so I don't think I'm going to go join them. And those two lies, they pervade all of our thinking. Paul quotes these discouraged members of the body, and he says their feelings do not make them any less a part of the body. Even if, even if their feelings testify otherwise, Paul uses this body metaphor to stress an important truth. Even aching body parts can't leave the body. All are needed. Whoever you are, if you've been baptized in the Spirit, your gifts are needed. 
And this is what Paul is getting at in verse 18. He says, in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Your gifts of the Spirit, your gifts in church ministry, they are not there for you. They're not there because you've placed them. They're there because God has built them in specifically to put you where he wants you. We don't choose who God brings to us. We look forward to receiving all the members that God sends, or we should look forward to receiving every single person the Lord sends our way. Likewise, those who are part of God's universal body, they are called to give themselves to a local church, to submit to a local body and use their gifts for the building up of that church. As Paul continues in verses 17 and 19, he's he's emphasizing that God has made a, a body with many various parts. And in this way, the eye needs the ear, the ear needs the nose, and so on and so on. In more layman's terms, we could maybe phrase it this way. The administrative type, they need the merciful type. The helper, they need a leader. The worker needs a listener. And the creative needs the detail. Our gifts are intended to work with one another. Paul concludes in verse 20, he says, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So Paul's first point about serving one another is that every part is needed. And that the parts who lament their status can stop looking down on themselves. Rather, we are to look to the one who has placed you in his body and trust that your placement in God's body is not a mistake. Because it's not. Rather, God's plan is to grow you as a part of his body and more to grow the body with your gifts. Don't believe the lie that says you're not needed. Rather, I would encourage you, ask the Lord where he would have you commit to using your gifts. This is the first application of service to one another, but there is a second. We have to reject the lie that says, I don't need you. I don't need the church. And of the two lies that Paul is addressing, I think the second one is perhaps the more destructive. And it's very possible that that second lie feeds into the first one. When the stronger parts of the body fail to see their need for others, when they only give certain parts honor and care, then the weaker and less presentable parts of the body suffer. Those weaker parts of the body are enticed to believe that they don't matter. But Paul thinks that this is the opposite. And in verses 21 through 25, he makes the countercultural push to lavish honor on, or lavish honor on the weaker and less presentable parts. Of the body. Here's what he says in verses 21 through 25. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment, But God has put together the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. Again, 
The conversation that Paul is having here is between parts of the human body, but it's not hard to see how this conversation reflects something of the body's order and arrangement. Whereas the first conversation lists various parts, it seems here we find in the eye and the head symbolism for leaders in the church. And what is so awful is that Corinth's leaders were saying, we don't need the lesser parts. We got it, Paul. We know what we're doing. God's gifted us. I see where we're going. You can back off. Instead of using their strengths for the good of others in the church, they sought to use their, their gifts for their own strength and their own purposes. And instead of seeing the value of every member and looking for ways to involve them, they were blind to those who were not like them. And I think, I'll be, I'll be honest, in my experience as a pastor, in my time in ministry, I have done a, a fairly poor job of identifying gifts of people who don't look like me, who don't have gifts like me. Because it's really easy to identify those just like ourselves, right? We see something in them that we go, oh yeah, that's really good. I like that. I can use that. I know how to do something with that. But we're less skilled at identifying gifts that are not like ours and putting those to use and celebrating them. This is actually where I believe Bethany's strengths lay. And while we all struggle, I think we have incredible people in Bethany. I was reflecting on that this week, and I, have to, I just want to share a couple things with you. In the last three weeks, we've had 23 new volunteers in different ministries in Bethany. That's incredible. Yeah, you can give a round of applause for that. Now, I've been, a, I've been a little bitter, I'll be honest, because like 19 of them have all been for Rachel in the children's ministry, and so I'm a little worried for John that he's feeling left out. So if you have a passion for youth ministry, we still need some more, more women in the youth ministry, so go give John some love and, and volunteer there, okay? But we have incredible volunteers in this church. I've been to a number of churches in my lifetime. I don't think I've seen a church that is so committed to volunteering as Bethany. I say that honestly. But we still need more. There's always more room for service. There's always something else going on. We have opportunities to serve in care ministry. I'd love to have people that are just willing to drive those who need to visit loved ones in the hospital or care facilities. We'd love to have people serve on cook teams so that we can do events where we feed each other because we know that fellowship is important and we love food. We have opportunities for service in the office. We have opportunities for service in every area of the church. We could use more tech volunteers. We could use volunteers everywhere. So if you're sitting there today and you're one of the individuals in Bethany that isn't serving and you have a gift, tell me about it. I would love to know what you're passionate about, how you're gifted, and how it can be used to support the church. I also want to celebrate Bethany's staff because some of you may not know this, but Bethany has incredible staff, both past, present, and I believe in the future. Absolutely. 
Mary Dick isn't here today. She's with family. But coming on staff and spending time with Mary, most of you probably don't see her day to day because she is always somewhere doing something with some ministry or community initiative or women in the church. She does a million things that I am not gifted to do. And so as a pastor in other areas, I am so blessed to have a coworker who is so gifted and passionate. Coming on staff, Steve's here. I'm going to point him out. It was an absolute blessing to have someone like Steve who is so passionate about Bethany's history and passionate about the church to help onboard me and teach me about Bethany and help get me up to speed about what's going on in the church and how I can use my gifts to serve. That is, that is, that is serving each other in action. I want to point out our custodians. Because I have love for custodians and service staff in a church. Partly because I was a full-time custodian in a church for a year, and I know how hard that job is. But I have never met custodial staff that have such a servant heart in a church, ever. Joseph, Suzanne, Matt, Mel, Daryl, all of them are incredible. These are individuals that don't seek any glory, don't seek any attention. They just go out and they work hard. And they ensure that all of our rental groups, all of our ministries, they are just able to minister and love others. That is incredible. And we need to celebrate that. See, every part of the church body is important. If we had 20 me's in the, in the church staff, I would feel sorry for every single one of you because that would be a disaster. My wife would agree. Most of you would agree. I know that because I don't have every gift. We need every part of the body to minister, not only to those inside our congregation, but to those outside as well. We need every part. So the third part, we're going to go on to the, th- the, the, last, the last thing here, and that is love. Paul calls diverse people born of one spirit to be one in Christ, to live at peace with one another, and more than just live at peace, to actively serve and honor one another. It says in verse 6, if all members suffers, then all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is love at work in the body of Christ. And this is why service together matters. When Christ saved us, he did not save us to be individualistic Christians. He saved us to be a body. He saved us out of our sinful, self-directed ways and placed us into his family of faith. And I think a large part of our sanctification process is learning how to actually live in community with others because it is hard. And this community, it's not an abstract, universal community, but a flesh and blood people with quirks and sins that we have to learn to love as we do together. Now, those of you that are married or in relationships, you might be able to identify with this, but my dear wife, she will tell me sometimes that I am hard to love. That is a shock to every single one of you. Didn't sound like a shock. She says that I'm hard to love sometimes. And when I'm hard to love, when I'm instructed that I'm being difficult, it's usually because my interests are self-serving. I'm focused inward on me. And I've recognized when she comes to me and she's appreciating and she recognizes that I'm pretty easy to love, the common denominator there is I'm focused on her. 
I think this is true for the church. If we're focused on the church, if we're focused on Christ and his mission and the gospel, if that is our focus, we're going to be easy to love. It's an apt metaphor for the church. Such a community, it demands more of us than we can give, but this is why the Spirit gave us gifts. In contrast to the world's teaching that we're to live for ourselves, the church calls us to be our brother's keeper and our sister's encourager. And as verse 26 suggests, a diverse body that loves one another will function differently than the world because it's training us for a different world. We need to look different than the rest of the world. A church with love in action, with those four principles in action, should look so profoundly different that it appeals to anyone outside these four walls. In practice, that sounds great, but the reality of the world is that we often get in our own way sometimes. The, fragi- the, the, the fragile nature of the human ego, our pride, our own desires, sin, they begin to supersede the instructions that we find in Scripture. And this is where we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 13. I told you we were going to get there. How many of you recognize 1 Corinthians 13? Right? It's the love passage. You've probably heard it at every wedding you've ever gone to. The only problem is, it's not about a wedding. Paul's not writing about a wedding. He's writing about church unity when he gets to chapter 13. He's writing about a church in division when he gets to chapter 13. When he's writing his letter and he begins espousing all of this beautiful poetic language about how love should be, he's talking to those who are in division with one another. He's highlighting the most basic truth of one body with many members. And I believe it to be one of the greatest struggles of the church throughout its existence. Gifts without love are useless. Paul says it right there. So what should love look like? What should our gifts and service to one another, our diversity, our unity? Well, it should be exactly what 1 Corinthians 13 says. We need to be patient with each other. We do need to be kind to one another. We need to have humility with each other. We can't insist on our own way all the time. We can't be resentful with one another or irritable, and we should be joyous whenever truth is spoken. We should allow the love and Christ in our life to endure through those times in which division is present. We should allow love to spawn hope that there is a future outside of the present reality. We should believe that love is going to transform the way that we do ministry. This is the type of love that Paul is instructing the church in Corinth, and I think he's instructing us right here to adopt. So what do we do with this? I have three quick apps, three quick applications that I think we can take away with this. The first is we need to submit to God's purpose in our lives. We demean our own gifts when we look at the envy of others. God has not given you something that is beneath you, but God has given you a role in the body. Now, sometimes we might, we might not like that we're a foot or an ankle or a finger or another part of the body that's maybe less desirable, but we're a part of it, and God has given us those gifts, and we need to use them. The second is this. We need to encourage others to use their gifts and celebrate them. 
When we proactively encourage others, we are actually required to sit down and reflect about why God has put this member in the body of Christ. And we build relationships. We actually become a community when we encourage others to use their gifts. And we need to celebrate that. And the third thing is we need to bind the body. Don't expect everyone else to think the same way you do. Follow Paul's instructions in Corinthians in how to love those around us and allow it to transform the way we work together. And as we close off today, what I, wanna, what I want you to be thinking of, what I want to highlight is that as diverse members of Christ's body, we long for the church to be one. That's unity. With our various gifts, we lean in towards one another and abide with one another. That's service together. And with hearts full of the gospel, we love one another. By sharing our hearts, sharing our burdens, sharing our possessions, all for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And why do we do that? If you're sitting here today asking me, this is great, but why should this matter? Well, because Christ gave his life for us. And that's all that matters. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, this morning I just pray that as we reflect on what it means to be one body with many parts. God, would you just instill in Bethany a spirit of unity and cooperation? Would you build in us our capacity for love and service to one another? And would you allow the diversity that is present in this congregation to be unified towards your purposes? Pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.